Oh, hello there. You look great. You are listening to the Inspired Minds Podcast. My name is Jeff Watson. I am indeed your gracious and your grateful host. Why am I gracious and grateful, especially today? Because I just got off shift and will continue my next shift as a caregiver. I want to talk for a second about this guy that I work with. I've been working with this guy for 2,000 hours as a caregiver. So what happened was about two years ago, I needed a job because I'm a student and I'm probably need to finish grad school, hopefully soon with a psychology and become a therapist, et cetera. But I needed some extra cash. So I found this gig as a caregiver. I'd never done this before, but how, you know, sit around and make sure things are okay. So I meet this guy, this guy's name is Donald. He is 44, but he doesn't know it. And I'll explain why in a second. And that is because in 1993, he was a star student. All the girls loved him. He was a track star. Everybody loved Donald. And in 13 years old, he was crossing the street one day and his body got hit so hard by an oncoming car that every bone in his body in the left-hand side broke immediately, then flipped over the hood of the car, massive TBI, so bad the policeman on the scene had to hold his head together, then induced coma for nine months. Surgeries, craniotomy, tracheotomy, gastrointestinal surgeries that affect him to this day. He had years of physical therapy, walking through water, walking uh, 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 speech therapy, all kinds of therapy. His eyelids couldn't open when he came out of his coma because the muscles had atrophied. He was in care home after care home after care home and abuse, and I've heard incredibly horrible situations and, and, and really traumatic things. His mind is at about 10 years old, perhaps. Um, he can't operate a computer uh, with touchscreen or keyboard, can't operate a phone, um, doesn't, oh, he has no memory too. His memory was shot out as well. Um, his short term memory is really gone. Somewhere it's about a 10 minute, I've noticed 30 minute, uh, I just forget things that so you tell him basic things. But the things that are really important to him, which are sense memory, which are love, compassion, concern for others, empathy, he remembers because we all do. Sense memory totally outpaces event memory. And the reason I bring this guy up is because though, despite all of that, and oh, by the way, he knows who he used to be. That is kind of rare in TBIs. Sometimes you kind of forget who he used to be because you're reprocessing a new life. He remembers it and he knows that he was quote unquote smart is what he says. I don't believe that for a second. The guy's brilliant, but he knows that. And he lives in acceptance. Acceptance is this guy, what he's all about, but he's also about gratitude because everywhere he goes, whenever I'm out with him, this six, three John, John C. Riley looking like guys insane. He goes, good morning, sir. Good morning, ma'am. I hope you have a really wonderful day. And it's a completely serious. And being with this guy is like being with Buddha. I call him the farting Buddha. And but the best thing about this guy is that he is sharp. He is Don Rickles funny. I've never met a human being that is that funny. I know comics. You don't have this guy's timing. It's it's amazing to watch this adaptation. And the reason I specifically talk about this is because of this next interview. This guy that I did the show with called uh, uh, named Brandon Cross and. What a fantastic interview. So he's one of those polymaths that I like talking to, which is you do a lot of things, you do a lot of shit, you're pretty good at all of them. And so his thing is he's a recording artist, a songwriter, and he's a filmmaker and an actor, and he's a writer. Um, he did this great book series called The Legacy that's about child abuse, and it takes that on and it's turning that into a film. Uh, he's got a show called Proper Manners that he did, uh, which is a dramatic soap opera. Um, we talked a lot about his music. He's a country music guy and he like old school country music. So we talked a lot about Porter Wagner and George Jones stories. And we had a great time. And, uh, the, but the thing on him, it's interesting. And this is the reason why I bring up my guy, Donald, my best friend, Donald, 
um, my brother Donald, is that he actually lost. He had a, there was this auto or there's an industrial accident that happened a long time ago for him, and he lost his leg, and he had uh, severe severe uh, nerve tissue damage and blood damage, and then he was uh, he was a high functioning autistic. So there's all these things that were that really came after him at once. And yet they're just a part of him, just like my client, because my client slash brother, he's like, yeah, it happened. I'm going to move forward with this. This is what I want to do. I want to become a good person and hug people and hold people. And in his simplistic way, in a beautiful way, that's what he does. And that's what Brandon did and continues to do. It's a part of him, but it's not him. And I think that's an incredible thing to think about and to really kind of drink in deep. So um, I hope you got out of this uh, as much as I did making it. As like I always say. I love what I'm doing. Hello. <laughs> All right. I got to go. Uh, I got to work with Donald in a second. How lucky am I? Bye. Well, hello, everybody on the Inspired Minds podcast. By the way, yet again, ladies and gentlemen, my name is Jeff Watson, although this is actually my third interview today. So with that third, I am like my voice is cracked out. But if I can get through this, this next guy is named Brandon Cross. Say hello, Brandon Cross, to the Inspired Mind audience. Hi there. How's it going? <laughs> Thank you for, uh, that was good. That was actually pretty Thanks. good. Pretty good. I am extremely excited to speak with you. And we were kind of chopping it up earlier on the uh, little pregame that we just did. But I'm going to begin the interview the same way I ask every same question, every single show, my friend. And that simply is, when you were young, what was the first thing that you can remember that truly inspired you? Was it a song or was it a book or a movie? Uh, the, the first thing that comes to mind is the, uh, is a song and it's the Bobby Goldsboro song, honey. Huh. I don't know. I really, oh, wow. Yeah. It's a, it's a song about a guy, um, reflecting on his wife who has died. And I thought it was just really, really, it's a really cheesy song, but it works. (laughs) I mean, it, it gets the emotion across despite the cheese. Well, um, great, great piece of work. Okay. Second part of the question is always, that was part A, part B is how did that get you to where you are now? It got me interested in music. That's the first, that's the first time I felt like, wow, this is something really worthwhile to do. I mean, I was a little kid, but I could see the potential. I could see that, man, you can, you can do things to people with this. I saw how, you know, I, I, I mean, I'm autistic and so I don't generally process things really on an emotional level, huh? but that song hit me on an emotional level anyway. And it was probably about the first thing that ever did in my life. And so, you know, I'm going, man, it, you know, it's a, you can actually do things like this to people. You can make them feel. And it was like, that is cool. It doesn't get better than that. No, and what a wonderful concept that I, it just hit me like a ton of bricks right now because, you know, as I'm a training therapist, I know about a lot of disorders and I do know about autism and I know how emotionally flat people can present. And the fact that somehow that song even pierced the wall of your autism is pretty incredible when you think about it. Yeah, and like I said, it's, I, I think it's the first thing that ever did. I don't recall really, shall we say, feeling something on an actual emotional level prior to that. So it was a really unique experience. Uh, which is probably why it was so profound. Clearly. Did you, so thematically, is it, is it kind of like a, like George Jones, he's had over her today kind of thing? Uh, somewhat. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, it's a, and the interesting thing is I get the impression from the song because I mean, it's, you know, the song's now, what, 55 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still, I still analyze the thing because it's a little bit unclear, but I get the impression that she committed suicide despite the fact that he was completely devoted to her. Wow. Um, and so it's, you know, think about that, how that would affect somebody. They're completely devoted to this person. And yet that's not enough for them to, to stay. I mean, that's going to, that's going to affect the surviving partner in a, a just a huge way. I, I, after this is over, maybe you can email me the name of that song. I really need to hear that for some reasons, but that's, that's incredible. And here's the thing. I love asking that first question because it creates a through line immediately. Right. From the point of inspiration, whatever that looked like for me, it was listening to Boston's more than a feeling when I was like five at a library, believe it or not, at a magic show at a library, come to think of it. But that was the thing that was like the, you know, that was the spark. That was the kickoff point for the rest of my life. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I remember hearing that for the first time also, because it was so, uh, you know, so far removed and so far above its contemporaries. I mean, that it, it, you could not hear that song for the first time and just go, I just think I had a religious experience. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've, I've told this so many, I've told this at least four times now on the podcast. So anybody who's listening has heard this before, fast forward a minute, because this, this is, I've done this before. But so yeah, in 1975, my father took me to a library. There was a musician playing. That's what they used to do, I guess, back then before there was, you know, the internet. And this musician comes out and I'll never forget this it goes dark. There's like 10 kids in this place and like goes dark in this tiny little stage. And then the opening strains of that song starts right with the guitar. Da, 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 da. And when it gets to the, I close my eyes and it slips out and it kicks in, the lights go on. And I do not remember anything about that musician or a magician for, at all. But I walked up to the magician and I said, what is that song? My dad was with me and he said, that was Boston's awesome. more than a feeling. I got my dad somehow grifted him into getting the 45 and I went home and I just put that needle on over and over again, understanding that I can control time and music. At five years old, it's a big deal. Yeah. Um, and there's an interesting, because uh, I don't know if this, I mean, I'm really, um, I, I'm specialized in research. I'm really good at research and I, I'm able to connect dots and it's probably autism thing, mm-hmm. but there's, more than the feeling, Boston in general and Bobby Goldsboro's Honey, there is kind of an interesting connection because of the fact that uh, Boston's lead singer, Brad Delp, uh, committed suicide. That's absolutely correct. You're absolutely right. Absolutely right. You know, people like that, sometimes I say that they're like comets who streaked across the sky but burned out as all comets eventually do, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, unfortunately, that is something, you know, art is such a, you know, such a bearing of the soul and such a, you know, being in touch with the soul that sometimes you can't, you you know, you just sometimes it just doesn't work out for you on a personal level. There's a, you know, artistic people have never been known historically for being the most emotionally stable people. (laughs) Quite well taken. Yeah. And to be quite honest with you, I think that's part of the part and parcel with being an artist, right? Because artists see things differently. I am one 
for better or for worse, most likely, some, most likely worse sometimes. There's, just, there's so much chaos going on, you know, in the head. But the way that you can make order out of the chaos, if you're an artist, and, you know, there's all types of artists. There's big A's, there's little A's, the whole thing. But for me, I make order out of chaos through art. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the thing is also, and this I've definitely noticed, um, and I'm sure it's not unique. I'm sure it's not a revelation to anybody. But, um, you know, the best art is derived from pain. I mean, a great artist uses oh, yeah. their pain. They they don't use, hey, I was I was skipping through a field of daisies today. It was wonderful. <laughs> you know, that's sure. just not going to make great art. No. <laughs> absolutely not. Yeah, even guys like George Jones, you know, that the guy was tortured. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the guy was a, uh, I mean, I guess I'm going to make an accusation. So I'll, I'll use the word allegedly. I mean, I, in my opinion, he was probably allegedly a functioning alcoholic. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> probably okay. not much probably about that. Yeah. I mean, the guy. Well, you know the famous, you know the famous tractor story, right? No. Oh, this is, this is George Jones to a T. This is kind of all you need to know about George Jones. So one time he was, uh, what was his wife's name? Um, I can't remember his wife's name, but one night, this is was all coked out. Was it Loretta Lynn? Was he married to Loretta no, Lynn? No, no. Uh, she was always a boo. But so George Jones is, you know, he's in the seventies and he's or he, in the seventies and he's doing coke and drinking everywhere. And at one point he's at the house He's, he's so drunk. He's like, I'm going to go to the liquor store. His wife takes the keys. She's like, you ain't going nowhere. She can't find him. Suddenly she goes after driving. He's driving the tractor to the, to, to the liquor store. <laughs> you know, that's called commitment. <laughs> <laughs> that's called addiction. That's called addiction. Tammy, Tammy Wynette, by the way. Tammy. I, I should have known that. That's right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's, that's it. Anybody asks what addiction looks like? That's it. Yeah. Well, like I said, I mean, at least, you know, you got to give the guy credit for being committed to the cause. A hundred percent. Almost when you think about it, when you think about it, the guy was like a method actor, right? Yeah. Just, oh, yeah. So method about it. I'm going to go crazy. Yeah. It's like, fine, take the keys to the car, you know? Yeah, exactly. I got the tractor. <laughs> <laughs> that is the greatest story ever. So speaking of stories. I really do want to go into, so, you know, I was talking about uh, or a second ago about how I like interviewing polymaths. And then as I like to describe it, polymaths is people just do a bunch of good bunch of shit because they kind of have to. And so you've obviously been doing a lot and I, I kind of want to get into some things. If I don't get to everything in time, sue me. Um, but so proper manners out of the gate. I want to talk about that. So explain that. I know that, uh, it's a series that that uh, you've been working on, writing as well, and directing. And tell me about the whole setup because it looks really good. Yeah, it's uh, basically the way I the way I term it is uh, Dallas if it were in a small town instead of yep. Dallas. <laughs> that's that's basically what it is. It's all of the uh, you know all the corruption and yeah. who's sleeping with who and all that in a small town. Give a who shot Jr. episode. Um, yeah, actually, <laughs> actually we do. Um, cause yeah, one of, one of the favorite, one of probably my favorite storyline in it. Cause I mean, that's a, it's a huge cast. Um, we, we stated, uh, openly that there were no extras in proper. We populated the whole town and we would use people 
And you never know knew when your storyline was going to come to the forefront. I mean, we, it was a huge cast and everybody ended up being utilized in a meaningful way. But um, <clears throat> we had a, a situation where um, there was a fire at a, uh, an illicit teen party and a number of teens in the town uh, were killed uh, in that. Um, and one of them was like a 16-year-old who had a 12-year-old brother and this brother this 12 year old kind of turned psycho from it but was good at hiding it i'll try to make the elevator pitch instead of going too long with it but anyway so the this 12 year old kid befriended the guy who invited his older brother to what would be his death and can and kind of convinced him to kind of mentor him since he didn't have a big brother anymore, said he forgave him and all that. And he set this elaborate, lengthy, like year and a half friendship together and then lured this uh, older teen into an isolated area and shot him um, because the whole thing was a setup to get revenge on who he felt was responsible for his big brother's death. Oh. That's pretty thematically heavy. Yeah. Yeah. We had, I mean, there was a lot of comedy in that and we had a a large uh, cast of kids involved in this. Um, And we taught them how to make films. I mean, we, we referred to it as a learning set. We, we would let the kids operate cameras and stuff like that. We would teach them how to make films while they were on set acting in the film or in the series. It's funny, you're actually the second interview I've done today where uh, this earlier woman that I spoke to this morning did the same thing. She had, she had a web series and she had the kids uh, write and directed it. It's really nice. Oh, okay. Yeah, we didn't have them writing and directing, but we did have them working on, you know, areas of, of the crew that they were sure. interested in. I mean, they were already acting in it, so, you know, we didn't need to teach them that part of it. But but they most of them, you know, they wanted to learn how to make, make movies. I, Think so that's we, wonderful mentorship. Yeah, yeah, it was great. That was it made it a lot of fun. It made long, hard days a lot of fun. Yeah, because you were giving back. You were of service. That's how it works. Yeah, yeah, and it was yeah. just it was a fun set to be on because of that. Sure, being of service tends to collapse time, as I realized. There you go. Yeah, really does. Uh, okay, next, boom, tombstone. You got an occult superhero or superhero, supernatural horror thing script? What's going on there? Yeah. Yeah. What the deal was is that I was getting so sick and tired of the fact that it had been years since there was a horror film that actually scared me because it went from being, you know, psychologically terrifying to just, you know, slash and gore. Not that I have anything against slash and gore, but it's not that scary. It's just kind of cool. Um, And so I said, you know, to heck with this. I am going to write one. I'm going to go, you know, full Hitchcock here and write something where, you know, you scare the crap out of the audience. And so what I did, and also this was a little bit of a revenge film too. Um, Because when I was a kid um, in the eighties, um, I got cast as the lead in a major horror film, major studio horror film. You did? Yes, I did. I got in within a, in a year. I mean, I was cast as a um, principal in Footloose and 
that ended up getting screwed up. I mean, there were, I got in a, in a year, I was cast in three major, uh, uh, LA studio, you know, major studio films and all of them ended up going south for different reasons. And, and I just said, screw that. I'm out of this. And then decided I'm, I'm going for music instead. But anyway, so back to tombstone, I got, cast in this house it was or house uh film it was called house and it was five kids who got get stuck in a haunted house and um and then the studio said hey for what we're paying these five kids we could get one adult name actor so rewrite the script for one adult getting caught stuck in the house instead of five kids so Boom, we're out of the film. William Cat ended up doing the film, and it honestly is not the greatest film in the world, largely because you can't have one person alone. There's got to be somebody to work off of. That's why they created Wilson the Volleyball in yeah. casting. It was somebody yeah. for Tom Hanks to work off of. 100%. So, right. Yeah, so uh, on a number of levels, I think that was a bad decision. I think five kids in the house would have been better. So it was, so like I said, this is also kind of a revenge script because I wrote it about five kids getting stuck in a haunted house. Um, said, fine, you guys didn't want to do it. I'll do it. Um, but, but like I said, largely it was because I was so sick of horror films that weren't scary and said, I want to have one that's going to make, you know, big manly men have to keep the lights on at night for the next month. I'm really glad that you have this division between gore and psychological horror because yeah. I understand that a thousand percent. I'm a gore hound. I really, I just, I was into Fangoria when I was a kid and that whole practical effects thing is like really influential for me, but it's almost a yin and a yang kind of thing because when you get into the psychological horror of, you know, things like rope, you want to talk Hitchcock, right? Like yeah. those kinds of movies are absolutely terrifying. The birds with no soundtrack except the sound of the birds uh-huh. Yeah, that is a that's a great one. Those little moves, um, those tiny little moves without having any soundtrack whatsoever and the sound of the birds only alone, that alone is pure far more terror than a lot of other things like winter. Sure. And the thing is, uh, you know, and a couple people discovered this by accident um initially, and then it ended up being true. Um and mainly Spielberg and and uh, Lucas. Uh, you know, ironically, since they kind of came up together in the same, you know, film class setting. But anyway, um, in Jaws, Jaws is terrifying. And a lot of it is because it's a long ways into the film before you really see the shark. Correct. And that was by accident. It was because their mechanical shark sucked. It was not working. And so they kept having to fake it um, and just work around the shark. And that ended up being the reason it was so terrifying. And then um, the same thing in uh, Empire of uh, the Empire Strikes Back, you don't see that snow monster at the beginning for a while because it wasn't working properly. But what people found out is that the best villain is one that you don't really see. You know, uh, I had no idea about that snow monster story. I knew about the Jaws story. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, the same thing happened to Lucas, you know, five years later. Um, but it, but it did uncover a very, very true, uh, psychological, uh, 
principle, which is the unseen villain is a lot scarier. The terror of the unknown rather than scaring somebody with what's right in front of their face. Being afraid of the dark. Yeah, yeah, basically. It taps into that. So on, in the tombstone, the way I decided, the way I made it so that it is terrifying is that each of these five kids has a phobia, you know, claustrophobia, spiders and bugs, things like that, um, that, you know, everyone in the audience is going to share at least one of these phobias. And the kids are tortured by the, the demon. It's basically a demon tortured by the demon with their fears. And then ultimately, you know, I don't know, uh, be a spoiler. So I guess I won't, <laughs> but they're, they are tortured by their phobia. Um, and that, you know, vicariously is going to then torture the audience members with the phobias that they share. And I chose five where I figured everyone is going to have at least one of them. And most people probably more than one. Right. And then, and then I throw, and then, and so the first part is just, you know, really a psychological thriller. But then I throw in a lot of extremely graphic gore because I like that too. I just don't want to use that. You know, it's just, that's not terrifying, but it's cool. Yeah. So. <laughs> Let's cut a guy's head off. Sure. Yeah. And in fact, ironically, yes, that does happen. <laughs> I, I know. I actually interviewed uh, the guy who did the final destination series uh, just a little while ago. And he was like, I like to have fun, like making up ways to kill people. Um, yes, it is brilliant at that. And honestly, that's kind of one of the things where I was going, yeah, I need to think of some really cool, unique ways to do that. And the Final Destination series was part of the reason for that, because that was so cool. Um, Final Destination, I got to give them a real hats off also. Final Destination, because... The horror genre, as I'm sure you well know, is like about the hardest thing in the world to come up with something that really is unique. And that was, number one, just the general concept. But secondly, the fifth film in the franchise. I mean, by five, it should be pretty stale, right? And instead, they came up with one of the most fascinating, unique, original twists to a, a horror film or any other kind of film, really, that I've ever seen. It was brilliant. Um, if you are, 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 have you seen it? With the Final Destination whole thing you're talking about? Yeah, five in particular? No. <laughs> okay. Um, do you mind, do you mind any spoilers? Oh, spoil away. Okay. Um, Five is playing along, you know, like the others. They're all just variations on how if you cheat death, death is going to find you anyway. But at the but at the end of five, you real it it morphs into the beginning of one. You realize this five was what led up to the whole thing beginning. It was like the first case scenario. But so it's a period piece. In you know, going back like 10 years. And if you watch it a second time through, you will see that there is nothing in that film that is less than 10 years old. You just don't realize it. it you know, it's so, it's so covert that uh, you don't realize it. And then all of a sudden you are in the situation with the, um, with the cast from the first one at 
the point where the first one begins. And it's like, that was freaking awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you this. What genre do you prefer to work in and why? I like coming of age stories. Um, and I've written a lot of those. Like legacy series, perhaps? Oh, yes, exactly. And that's, you know, that's partially uh, the reason why I just, I just like exploring that. Um, uh, there's so much you can do in coming of age because there's so many variations on even common themes when you are, well, when you're coming of age, when, when you are going through the most morphic change that a human ever goes through in the shortest period of time, that leads to unbelievable chaos that you can really explore and both find a lot of humor in it and honestly a lot of um substance as well absolutely i'm a i'm a horror nerd i'm i'm a i'm just a nerd i was gonna say i'm an art nerd i'm a film nerd and i'm a this nerd i'm just a nerd i'm cool that's fine don't care <laughs> I, would, I i embrace i embrace my flaws my friend oh yeah <laughs> Kind of the key to life, if you ask me. So I do want to ask you now about your music. And as I mentioned earlier, I'm a massive music or country music fan. And, I, and specifically for me, it's because whenever I say country, there's like bro country, which does its thing. But I'm an old school, old Western guy. You know, I was in the George Jones fan club with my late wife. Like both she and I were huge fans of George Jones and Marty Stewart. Porter Wagner actually hit on my wife <laughs> before he died. We were at a show one time. He brought us back steady. <laughs> I swear to God, I was 80 years old. And my wife, she had big shock pink hair. She was this punk rock queen. And we were at the front of the stage. This is in LA. And Marty Stewart opened up. So it was like a big deal. And he's in the front. And he's just looking at my wife. And my wife is just like drunk and like, yeah, Porter Wagner. This is amazing. The end of the show, the roadie comes out and says, Mr. Wagner, we'd like to see you uh, backstage. And I go, can I come? And the other guy goes, so you kind of hit on my wife for a while. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, why not, huh? I mean, you know what? He kind of was 80. He's going to die anyway. Like, cool. Um, but I bring this up to say, because I'm an old school fan, I got to be honest. I've listened to your music. I've listened to Money Talks and Love Again. But my God, when I hear pedal steel, my heart melts. Just melts. And there was an element <laughs> of, like, Western swing I heard in these Money Talks. And But the Love Again song, my God, I mean, it was just so pro profound for me because, again, my wife and I were giant music country fans. We went to, my God, we went across the country three times to go to uh, every single studio we could imagine, you know, Studio B and Sun and Chess and everything. So there's a real heart into the music that you play. I can obviously tell this. It's not sterile. So tell me about that. It's an open-ended question, but tell me about the heart that goes into it. Okay. First of all, I come kind of, kind of come by that, by the music and really, you know, the whole thing honest, um, because, and I'll, I'll just, you know, do the elevator pitch on this. My grandmother was a vaudeville, uh, performer in the, you know, in the early days and, you know, basically a hundred years ago. Yeah. And, uh, and she was also a recording artist. So she was a, a, you know, a known, um, uh, musician. Um, and the thing, the thing that was kind of funny is, um, and this kind of describes her and maybe describes me a bit as well, but, um, 
at, you know, back in the day, they would not hire women to um, do a lot of, uh, uh, of entertainment positions. One being the orchestra pits in vaudeville. They wouldn't hire women. So right. she masqueraded as a man to get work in, in the vaudeville pits because she was a violinist. And like I said, she released records and stuff, but she also would play in the live shows. And she had to literally pretend to be a man in order to be hired. Wow. Um, and, and then in the forties, she became one of the first, uh, female TV producers. Um, so anyway, so I, like I said, I kind of come by that honest, uh, from her. She was, she was a riot. What but a, anyway, may I, may I just interrupt you for a moment and just acknowledge sure. what a powerhouse of a woman. Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah. She, it was, it was awesome. I mean, she was, she was so cool. Um, and I, and I, and yeah, I love that. I love the fact that she had that kind of dedication to the art and, you know, basically those, that, those kind of balls. I mean, that was great. Um, and so I, I gain a lot of inspiration from her, um, because of, you know, what she was willing to go through and, you know, what she did for her art. But, uh, but at any rate, um, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm, shall we say, a good old boy from California. So naturally I vacillated to country, which, you know, it's like, I don't know how that happened. It just did. I mean, I grew up on Kiss and things like that. And, you know, I tried to perform that, but I just had this natural twang for whatever reason. And, yeah. you know, I'm trying to do heavy metal, but I'm, you know, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I've got this country twang doing heavy metal. So finally I said, yeah, forget it. I'm just going to find out about country music and see about that. And then fell in love with it. Yeah. You- um, You've got that little hiccup too that a lot of good country singers do. I don't know if you yeah. know what that oh. is, but you know. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's great. Um, but yeah, so if money talks, I mean that thing is very traditional country. Mm-hmm. Um, Love again. Uh, a couple interesting things on that. First of all, the reason why I wrote that is I was listening to Don Williams, and I'm going, you know, this is so cool because it's just. Don and his voice. I mean, his arrangements were very, very minimal. Um, and, you know, I said, man, I want to write a Don Williams song. I want to write something that is just completely skeletal, that if you hear it just on a guitar, it's going to be as powerful as if you put full, full production into it. And that's how that song came about. Um, and then I did actually win a best song award at a film festival because it was released, it was used in, uh, in a production that was in the film festival and I won best song, um, for that. So that was kind of fun. Huge. Yeah. It's incredible. Thanks. Absolutely incredible. I just want you to know that that kind of like those chord structures, those, uh, you know, the violin, like the old Western violin, all that stuff. It's in my DNA. Um, my family is a country music fan. I'm a country music fan. I'm, I'm also a punk rock alternative, blah, blah, blah guy. But at the end of the day, if you give me anything, Lyle Lovett, Graham Parsons, you know, all the, all the greats, if you give me any of those, I mean, I'm with the Hank Williams grave. I went to a place where Hank Williams died in the hotel. Like, wow. I'm, I'm that guy. I even saw actually it's kind of a fun story. Uh, speaking of people hitting on other people, big legends. I saw Buck Owen at the Crystal Palace, right? And. Okay. 
Same thing. Buck Owens was sitting, it was something about my life. She was beautiful, but really sitting in the middle of this, of this crystal palace, which is, you know, the big place in uh, like the hall, essentially of Bakersfield sound. And my wife and I were sitting there and he hit on my wife from the stage. Hey, who's that cute little pink little lady out there? <laughs> <laughs> and we were huge fans. Um, I saw Merle Haggard there. Uh, and that was actually a fun show because he was, you know, particularly craggly as you would imagine. And somebody yelled out, play Oki from Muskogee. And then he said, this is my goddamn show. I'll play whatever the fuck I want. Sit down. I was like, yeah. <laughs> that's why I'm here. Yeah, that, that'd that be Merle. That's why I'm here. Thanks, Merle. I'm gone. Don't need to hear anything more. <laughs> yeah. But how did you get in the class? So why country? How did you get from a, a kiss-loving kid to doing this? Um, well, like I said, I, you know, every, every you know, I was, uh, you know, in a couple bands and stuff and I'm trying to do rock and, and, you know, all the, all the while I'm doing rock, I'm just feeling this, you know, Hey, I should be doing country. I just am country. Even when I try to do rock, it comes out as country. And so then I said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to see what country's all about. And I kind of explored it a bit and just fell in love with it. What I found out was that, you know what? That's where music is. That's where that's where meaningful uh, meaningful lyrics are. It's where meaningful concepts are. Um, I thought the music itself was you know was so melodic. Um, where you know, with a lot of types of music, melody is kind of secondary. But I love it when it's all about the melody. And country, you know, country is where that concept lives and absolutely yeah so i just said yeah hey not only am i just you know is my style drawn to that but i love it it's uh, it's just great there's something that's so almost primal might be an odd word to use because it just the best country songs are just four guitar or four chords or maybe even two sometimes right yeah, they're just yeah. so elegantly, I mean, elegantly simplistic. Right. Yeah, we're we're like I said, you know, with love again. I wanted to explore, you know, hey, something that can just sound that could just be played on a single guitar, just an acoustic guitar, and still move people um, as much as the full production. Now, granted, I I like full production, but. I like the song at its heart to be something that is so, so real and so true and authentic that it can be played on an acoustic guitar and still not just work, but work beautifully. I have said before, something very similar, and that is though I can expand on that in a matter of bit. A great song is when you can do it in any genre and it works. There you go. There you go. Any, any I, genre. Reggae. I would definitely. Yeah, I would definitely go along with that sentiment. In fact, I mean, well, if money talks, I mean, as you know, you've heard it, so you know, I mean, that is a full production, you know, with a lot of real sweetening in there. I mean, it's even got a dobro in there, you know, I mean, but uh, my original demo is an acoustic guitar in my voice. That's it. And it sounds great. Incredible. <laughs> so speaking of music, and here's the twist that I mentioned, uh, a bit of a twist, perhaps. So there's been this song that's been stuck in my head for the last 30-odd years, a little more than 30 years. And every once in a while, it pops into my head, and it pops out, and it pops in, and it pops out. And that song is called Dear Mr. Jesus. 
And I remembered the song for 35 or whatever it's been years since I heard it, thinking so-and-so, right? Yeah, power and, source. Yeah, and so I started reading up on the, on the story about it, and it exploded. And I, if, I'm, if I remember correctly, that even like an Australian radio station wanted to premiere it, but they couldn't get the music over there, so they had a like called station in the U.S. to play it. Tell me about that experience. Well, that's, uh, that's the original um, Dear Mr. Jesus um, from Power Source with the vocal right. by a six-year-old girl named Sharon Batts. Right. And, and, and here's the thing. And this, I don't know, it may come across as a little bit cynical, but uh, thing, something that, and honestly, I'm going to blame autism on this too. Very convenient. Um, but, uh, you know, because everybody's going, oh, that's so adorable, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, yeah, the song is great, but that girl cannot sing. You know? <laughs> yeah. You're, you're right. It's like, yeah, it's like maybe she, you know, fine, I'll give you that. She's a cute little six six year old girl, but man, dang, she cannot sing. Her singing sucks. And I don't and personally, I don't find a little kid who sucks at singing to be endearing. I just that doesn't work for me. Well and Shirley Temple, come on. Well, yeah, well, okay, but I mean, she, there are other things that make her endearing, but, uh, you know, bad singing is just bad singing, I I mean, agree. I, no matter how you slice it. Um, so, but I always thought, so I always thought the song was way better than the recording. I thought that the recording was not worthy of the great song that Richard Kinder had written. And so I always wanted to redo it, uh, you know, do it. A little bit better, like find a kid that could sing brilliantly and have that kid do it. Um, and so, first of all, I had some correspondence with Richard Kinder, who wrote the song, and said, you know, hey, you mind if I have some fun with your song and see what we can do with it? And he said, hey, be my guest. Go for it. Um, and when I was uh, making a CD a while back, there was also something I wanted to do. So they, these played off of each other. Um, the song, I will always love you, you know, originally Dolly and then yep. me. Um, that was, uh, it, there was a, and it's, this actually is connected with the legacy series books. All these things kind of fall into place together, but the legacy series books, is um, taken from actual real correspondence of a little 12-year-old kid who is terminally ill and is also being physically and emotionally abused by his parents and sexually abused by a neighbor. And these are writings and correspondences he had with some online friends while this was happening. So, I mean, it, you know, this is not an adult looking back 30 years later going, this happened to me when I was a kid. This is the kid the day that it's happening, you know, going and telling his friends what just happened to him and kind of crying on their shoulder. Anyway, one of the, um, one of his friends online, um, had a best friend who committed suicide. (laughs) So we're back to that again. And he left as his suicide note. He wrote down the lyrics to, I will always love you. Wow. And it was like, holy crap. I mean, I actually paid attention to the lyrics and I'm going, 
you know, he's right. Not that he killed himself, but he's right. This is not a breakup song. This is a suicide note. And by the way, this comes back to Porter Wagner too. It does. It certainly does. Dolly Parton. Yep. Dolly Parton wrote that actually as a goodbye to Porter when she decided to go solo instead of being his duet partner. But anyway, so, you know, I'm looking at the lyrics and I'm going, holy crap, that is a suicide note. I mean, you look at those, those lyrics and you think of it in terms of a suicide note, it will blow your mind. And so I always wanted to record that um, and make a video of it uh, using it as a suicide note. So I'm making my CD and I'm going, okay, I got these two songs because I want, I will always love you to be sung by a kid. I want in this video, I want to tug at people's heartstrings. I want this. I want the kid who commits suicide to be just a melt your heartstrings type of kid instead of some adult that you're going, good, glad he's gone. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That was dark. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, and and I tie it back to the legacy also, but I found a 10-year-old kid with like one of the greatest voices ever and got him to sing I Will Always Love You and Dear Mr. Jesus for the album. Figured, hey, may as well, you know, let's, I want to do both of these with a kid and let's put it on there. If one of them's a hit, now we got a follow-up. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, and then I found a kid who um, looked like the, the real kid from The Legacy because because of my connection to the legacy and what this kid was going through, it's like his look, and it was like just this angelic face and long, straight blonde hair. He was just, you know, an adorable kid. Um, and that always, you know, just kind of became to me the, the face of childhood innocence. And so I found a kid who kind of looked like this kid from the legacy. Um, to play the role in the I Will Always Love You video. And anyway, so I put those together and um, had them record that. And it was like, wow. And we didn't, I Will Always Love You, I made the video, um, which is very powerful. Um, We didn't release it as a single since it was a cover, but the video did go top 10 in the UK um, and got some really fascinating reviews like, this thing will make the hairs on the back of your neck stand up and things like that. But anyway, so I've got this kid who is just a brilliant singer doing um, this, this uh, updating of dear Mr. Jesus is kind of what it comes back to the bottom line. And I think it's really, really powerful. In fact, not just me, um, you know, child help the group. I mean, the song is about child abuse. Yeah. The, uh, the group child help, you know, like all the videos that have, you know, if you are, you know, experiencing abuse, call this hotline number. And the number is always child helps hotline. And they adopted the, the kid that I got to sing it as a um, youth celebrity ambassador and also adopted my version of uh, dear Mr. Jesus as their official anthem. Wow. How fantastic. Yeah, it was, it was cool because, you know, it's what I wanted to do. I wanted to make a difference with both of those songs. Sure. 
in. Sure. And I will say this too, that because I kind of want to go into sort of last uh, stuff here because there is a thread there and the thread is that you want to help people. And that's kind of where I want to head next because um, I know, and I would love for you, if you're, if you're okay with talking about this, about the, uh, the accident that you got into. And there's a great line that I was reading your bio and it said that yet out of the chrysalis, another emerged. And I thought that was just a great phrase. I've been through my own stuff. It's, it's very different, obviously, than, than perhaps yours. But I do kind of have that butterfly phoenix metaphor that's been kind of throughout my life. So if you don't mind kind of talking about a, a little bit about what happened or how much you like and what you've learned from the experience. Um, yeah, sure. I mean, first of all, I don't mind it at all. I mean, you know, which I get, I get a chuckle when people, is it, is it okay to talk I, about that? It's I'm like, the same way. Why not? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's like the only reason I would, the only reason I wouldn't want to, it has nothing to do with, no, it's too traumatizing. It's because there are a lot more interesting things that, that I might want to talk about. To, of course. To, <laughs> of course. Uh, in fact, I mean, I've, done interviews where it's like yeah let's talk about your injury and and you know your music and films and books and stuff and it's like well okay i lost my leg and then i went and did this and they're going whoa whoa hold back hold on we want to talk about that a bit and it's like why it's boring right um, i understand that and actually if i can interject for a heartbeat for some clarification i completely understand that because people i get that all the time right and I am open about it. I'm transparent about it. But again, it's just another side of me. It's not, it's an additive part of my life. But what I really want to know is what you've learned from it. Yeah. Well, that's, and, and that's the thing. I mean, first of all, the, the, you know, the injury itself, I mean, it really was boring. I, I did, I lost a leg and got, uh, you know, like systemic nerve damage and all kinds of crap like that from what really amounts to one of the most boring things you can possibly get. So honestly, the, the being mauled by a bear story works a lot better because it's, it's it's a lot more fascinating, but the truth of the truth of the matter, and this actually plays well into country music. I was a railroad conductor and was in a train accident. Boom. Simple as that. Wow. There you go. There's an entire (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's. I, I mean, it, it does kind of you know add to the authenticity and truth <laughs> for being a country musician. It does. <laughs> You're legit. Yeah, but uh, yeah, it was uh, you know, and it was. I, I mean, the rea- reality and what one thing I get a kick out of. I'm do a little tangent here is when people go, yeah, I've heard that you know if uh, you know you get a leg cut off or something that you know it doesn't it doesn't you don't feel it or anything, and it's like, I'll tell you something, buddy. Yeah, I felt it real good. Uh, yeah, that's <laughs> like no, maybe that happens with some people, but not with me. Not no, me. it it hurt. Um, yes, I definitely, I said, ouch, but, uh, but anyway, so, um, yeah, so that, you know, that happened and it was like, uh, you know, first of all, I mean, other than the fact that it hurt like a mother, um, it was like, well, okay, this is, I guess I'm going to be learning a lot of interesting things that I didn't know before. Um, and I did actually consider that, that, well, that's going to be interesting. And it's like my, my family were telling me that, uh, you know, saying basically your attitude when you were in the hospital and when this was going on, they were saying you, your attitude is what helped us be able to get through it. 
because you're in there laughing and just being you, you know, nothing really had changed. You weren't in there feeling sorry for yourself. <coughs> and they're, you know, they're saying like, yeah, if it had been me, I would have been going, oh, why me? Why me? And I said, first thing I thought was, why not me? You know what? I, this happens to people all the time. I'm too good for that or something. So it was like, okay, this, okay, I guess it's my turn this time. Now, Can you tell me a little bit more, just my own soul searching, honestly? Can you tell me a little bit more about that why not me idea? Um, yeah, it was, it was like, Hey, you know, bad things are always happening to people and good things are always happening to people. And, uh, you know, I'm not presumptuous enough to think that I'm either too good for anything bad to happen to, or too bad for anything good to happen to, for that matter. You know, we're all, you know, we all, uh, uh, have just as much chance of having something like that happen as anybody else. I mean, somebody listening right now, uh, 10 minutes from now, they may get in the car to just drive to the store and end up a quadriplegic. Um, plus, being in, in, in the hospital was really eye-opening. For example, um, one of the people that was in the physical rehab that I was going to every day uh, for like five years. But uh, one of the, one of the people that was in there, he was, he had lost two arm or excuse me, two, both of his legs and an arm. Mm. And it's like being around this guy, I would have been ashamed of myself to have been feeling sorry for myself. If I'd had a moment of, Oh, poor me. I would have felt like a jackass, be, you know, with being around this guy. It's like, what have I got to complain about? <laughs> yes. I, as I mentioned earlier, before we started recording, I'm a caregiver to a man whose body was demolished at 13 years old by a car accident, TBI, memory of a goldfish, um, can't walk barely. Uh, you know, it's just one thing after craniotomy, tracheotomy, the whole deal. And yet he is the most graceful, wonderful human being. He's also the funniest guy I've ever met in my entire life. And he <laughs> under shockingly funny. Like, honest to God, this guy's like Don Rickles funny. And he's completely mentally, he's technically mentally challenged, severely mentally challenged. Can't even operate a computer. And yet he understands pathos. He understands grace. He understands humility. He understands acceptance. And then he does fart jokes. It's unreal, right? <laughs> You have no idea. You have no concept. He looks like he looks like a like a hulking five sixty version of John C. Riley. He's forty four, but he doesn't really know it because uh, he forgets everything. I love this man to death, and it's the same thing, my friend. Every time I hang out with this guy, I'm like, okay, if that guy can do it, I can. Yeah, uh, and the thing is, it opened. Well, and here's the thing: I was obviously you know a lot more physically mobile prior to this. Um, but I was not living an authentic life. Um, you know, I was not working as a conductor on the railroad because I really wanted to be working as a conductor on the railroad. It was, I was doing what everybody says you're supposed to do. Right. And I was not really exploring, you know, I knew I was an artist. I mean, I knew, you know, I was writing songs. I, I knew I needed to sing songs. I knew I needed to write books and films. I needed, I knew I needed to do these things, but I wasn't, I was just living the ordinary life because everybody told me you're supposed to live the ordinary life. 
And when this happened, I'm going, you know what? Uh, no more ordinary life. Uh, you know, it's everybody kind of the song, you know, live like you were dying. I mean, yeah. it, it's an eye opening experience um, where you realize that, you know, you don't get a second chance at this little thing called life. You get your one shot and that's it. Yeah. And damn, man, do what you're meant to do. Be true to yourself as some uh, unknown writer once said to oneself, thine own self be true. Right. Uh, that is a, yeah, there's, there is no more true statement than that. Uh, if you do not, if you're not true to yourself and to the person and to what, what and who you were meant to be, you're never going to be happy. And if you're never going to be happy, you're never going to be able to bring anybody else happiness. Um, so honestly, I've told people this and it's not just a, you know, catchphrase that I sound cool saying it, but it's true. That accident was the best thing that ever happened to me. I it, cannot believe you just said that, my friend, because that's exactly my experience. Precisely yeah. my experience. I am grateful for my trauma. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because I have become a transformed man. I believe, quite honestly, um, that, that we have different narratives in our lives. And some of them can be even co-occurring. People think that we have like one through line, but I think one through line can stop and another one can start. We have many lives within one lifetime, right? And oh, absolutely. That's precisely what you just said, was the gift of trauma, because I've experienced wonders and grace and joy and beauty that I would never experience had I not gone through the trauma. Yeah, Absolutely. I mean, I was after this, you know, not only was I just, you know, living the life I was meant to live, but I was better uh, for those around me. I was able to spend a lot more time with my kids and in much more meaningful ways, Um, you know, whether they would, you know, echo that sentiment, who knows, that's their choice. They, you know, they may or may not, I don't know, but in my mind, um, that was a tremendous improvement. Um, I think I became a much better example for them. Um, and, and I've been able to help other people as well. Um, like just as I'll just throw out one example, there, a, a, a major prominent news anchor, um, has a son who is in a wheelchair and this newsacre um, reached out to me and asked me if I would, if I could spend some time with his son, huh. because he wanted to, um, he wanted him to see somebody in a wheelchair who was going out and doing things, who was accomplishing things that, you know, the the majority of able-bodied people never really motivate themselves to go out and do. Yeah. We wanted to show him that, you know, you can excel. You can not only, you know, live a, a full and healthy life, but you can make it as meaningful as you want. And I've done, I've spoken to a lot of parents of autistic kids um, for the same reason, because they're constantly being told that, uh, you know, if you can actually get to where you function a little bit and can maybe someday, hopefully, live on your own. Wow, that's a great achievement. Yeah. And they're seeing me, you know, uh, charting music and 
writing books and making films and all this while being autistic. And they wanted to, you know, expose their kids to that, their autistic kids to that and show them luck. You are an example of an inspired mind. See what I did there? Plug there we go. Oh. So with that in mind, I'm going to close up shop here because this is my third interview that's over today. This is an all-time high. I gotta, I'm going to get some Thai food down the street. Can't wait. But here's how I like to end these shows, my good man. I'm going to, I do a little shtick here. It's going to involve some acting. I say the same thing every single time. I'm going to pretend to say goodbye. I'm going to say some stuff. You're going to pretend to say goodbye, say some stuff. I'm going to pretend to hang up, and we'll do a little post-game chat. Deal? Great. Hurry off to the races. I really, truly enjoyed this conversation, Mr. Brandon. I, I truly did. The thing about I love about these conversations is that you can just go anywhere. And I'm so grateful for your time, and I'm grateful for your wisdom, and I'm grateful for your music, which really did honestly touch me. And I'm a hard, hard target when it comes to that stuff. Like, I, I know my stuff, so this is good praise for you, to be honest with you. Not that you really need it. But that well, being said, thanks. Yeah. I, cannot wait. I, can, I can never get too much praise. Well, no one can. <laughs> to be honest with you, on a total side note, this is when people say, like, oh, what do you need, validation? Yeah, that's the point. Like, right. Everybody, who doesn't? Everybody does. I hate when people say <laughs> <laughs> uh, what do you what do you think you're special what do you think you're unique yeah absolutely i am we all are it's called dna yeah it's like no i want everybody to tell me i suck constantly <laughs> <laughs> talking about at any rate i had a wonderful time your turn go for it well thank you very much um i i i love i love people who are trying to put forth uh positive messages and you know inspiring minds what a great name i love that because you know you look at that and you know that what you are look what you're in for is an uplifting experience so no let's not carry let's not carried away i'm kind of an asshole but just be honest see but that's what that shows is that you can be an asshole and still motivate and and uplift people yeah look at Patton. i mean anyway yeah oh um, true well, that's the thing. You can't, you can't be, you can't be thinking you're better than everybody else and, and be able to reach them and uplift them. Of course not. No, I'm just some guy. Um, yeah. That being said, I'm going to pretend to hang up and then we're going to do the post deal. Great. Hey, three, two, one, click. <laughs>